You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So today, uh, last week we ended up with verse 34 in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul is challenging the, the Corinthians in this. It looks like a drop in that, that applies to what was before, but it actually applies to everything. The, the Corinthians have not been sober-minded people. They have figured out ways to pretty much screw everything up. Um, anybody feel like maybe they've been there once or twice in their life? Yeah, me too. And he says, to them, he says, I want you to become sober-minded. By the way, the only place in the New Testament where that particular word is used, for some have no knowledge of God. And he's equating false teaching with no knowledge of God. And he says, I speak this to your shame. He wants them to think about what he said before and about what's about to come. I think he's warning them, or not warning, that would be, he's preparing them for about what's to come. Now, there's a lot of questions in these days, back in the, in the day of Greek dualism, and I'm not going to get too much into it in the introduction, but because we'll, we'll deal with it as we go to each verse. But in the days of Greek dualism, misunderstandings about the body and about the spirit. They taught that the body was what was important, and, or excuse me, the spirit is what was important, and the body was at best a useless appendage that had to be discarded at death, never to be dealt with again. All over, I'm done with that thing, and it led to a number of, of sinful habits, one of them being that whatever you did in the body wasn't a big deal because the body wasn't real, wasn't important, and so there was a lot of immorality. That's why Corinth was famous for that, and that philosophy would undergird and underwrite those actions. But now what we're going to be talking about today um, is how the dead are raised, what they look like. And I kind of flippantly last week mentioned that the God of the universe would have no more trouble re reconstituting a burned up or exploded body or drowned body than he would speaking the universe into existence. But it's been a very real concern of people throughout the millennia. How can this be done? And so I, I shouldn't have just discarded 2,000 years of concern with a flippant statement, and I apologize for that. But when we, when we go through this section, we're going to be talking about the God of the universe who literally said, let there be light, and a 13 billion light year or bigger, they don't really know, universe sprang into existence at his word. And so the difficulty of reconstituting a dead body and reuniting it with the spirit that is either with him or is in Sheol is absolutely the simplest thing on his agenda that you can imagine. Actually, that's a human, that's actually an anthropomorphic explanation. It's a human explanation. There is nothing difficult for God. So as we go through this, we're going to be answering maybe some of our own questions, but also the questions that the Corinthians raised. So let's, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start at verse 29 and read through the end of the chapter. I don't know that we'll get that far. As a matter of fact, I'm sure we won't, but... but I'd like us to have that much context. Verse 29, 1 Corinthians 15. And he's talking about 
Again, he's continuing his argument, his dissertation to the Corinthians about the fact that the resurrection of the body is a fact, a fact of life. Otherwise, he says, what will those who do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? And why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in the Lord Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. <clears throat> Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, just as he wished, and to each of the seeds of a body of its own. All, the, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and the but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O, great, o death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. <laughs> so the question comes, with what kind of body will we, will, we, will we be raised, the Corinthians are asking. This chapter, this comes the section of the chapter that deals with what the resurrection body will look like and how the resurrection will occur principally. Paul will treat this issue very well in this section. Now, supposing he says the resurrection Supposing he says that the resurrection does occur, how would the dead be raised and with what kind of body will they have when they are raised? <laughs> the Greeks in Corinth, as I mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, would have been thoroughly influenced by the philosophy of dualism. Um, it's a pagan philosophy, 
And they believe the spirit to be the real person and the body to be simply, as I said, at best, a, a useless appendage to be discarded upon death. So the question that Paul is answering may have been, and I think probably was from some, an honest and innocent question, a good question. But from some, it could have been an argument. It could have been, well, what kind of body are they going to be raised with, Paul? Um, either way, Paul anticipates it, and he provides the answers. Um, now, he doesn't necessarily directly answer how the dead are raised, because that should be obvious. If the God of the universe, as I mentioned earlier, could speak into existence by a word, the entire universe, how hard can it be for him to reassemble a body that was, say, drowned or, or exploded or, or uh, just decomposed in the ground or burned up? In verses 35 through 49, Paul will give an illustration from nature. Then he will describe the kinds of resurrection bodies then he will contrast the two types, earthly and resurrection bodies, and then he will bring to their minds again the reason for everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes back for Paul, and for us it should, to the Lord. The point is that just as our lives here on earth had a body that fitted that life, our lives are actually quite well fitted to this life here. Our bodies are. So our future lives in heaven must have a body suitable to that life. So he will explain that the perishable body that we have here will be replaced with a glorified body that will never perish. And it won't be overweight, and it won't have varicose veins, and it won't trip, and it won't have to have laser surgery so that it can see everybody out in the audience, and other things. It'll be perfect. It'll be the body that Adam had before the fall. And so Paul treats this question. They ask the, the question, how are the dead raised? And he says this. He, I, I read this and I thought, gee, Paul, chill. You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So it, it, I'm kind of anticipating that there was some less than kind ways that they were asking these questions. Paul was dealing with not just reticent brethren, but people who were teaching the wrong thing. They were believing the wrong thing. He, he, was, he captured that in verse 12 when he said about the resurrection. He said, um, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So these are probably the ones he's dealing with. They're the fools. They're the ones that are teaching a false doctrine. Paul treats the questions as they arose from pagan philosophy and skepticism. The word fool translates the Greek word with, that means without reason or devoid of thought. You unthinking? You brainless? That's what he's saying. He's not, it's not the word that, from which we get moron. It's, it's uh, devoid of thought. His first example is from the plant world. When something is planted, uh, its form alters as the planted seed de decomposes and then is rejuvenated by absorbing the nutrients from the earth into something that looks different but is actually just a different form of the thing that was planted. Now let's face it, this is not really intuitive. Um, taking a piece of a plant and burying it in the ground, an action that always results in eventual decomposition, does not seem to be the proper way to propagate a species. But so it is, and so it works. What happens when you bury a battery in the ground? It rusts and decomposes. What happens, I, I, I use that because I saw one the other day. <laughs> Why did they bury this? I think they're going to charge the ground up or something, but anyway. What, what happens when you bury, um, about the only thing you can bury in the ground and, and come back 2,000 years and find it there later is Crisco. Just be aware of that. Um, you, can, you can find that a couple thousand years later, and it won't, the bacteria don't want it, 
The only people that, the only things that eat it are, are us, <laughs> and they make good biscuits with it. But if, if you leave a car unattended, un, un, uh, it rusts and falls apart. If you leave anything, pretty much the second law of thermodynamics applies. It, it decomposes. It, it tends towards randomness. And so it's not intuitive that breaking off a piece of a plant, sticking it in the ground, is going to result in a fruit, a, a beautiful, rep, a, another rendition of that very plant, complete with a whole bunch of, of food on it. So Paul is saying, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that's what happened. You put that seed in the ground. It, de it starts to decompose. The, the covering decompose. It con connects with the nutrients in the ground, and then it begins to grow. And so in verse 37, he says, and that which you sow... You do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. You don't dig up a wheat plant and take it and plant it in another field to propagate the, the wheat. Rather, you take the seeds, which aren't, as Paul says, the body which is to be, and you plant them. Our earthly body, which is not the body which is to be, must die other than the ones that will be alive at the rapture. Now, that's not to say we won't look the same, we won't be recognizable, we won't have the same appearance. But it's going to be a different body, a body that's, this body is clearly perishable, isn't it? I mean, look. I look in the mirror in the morning and I go, who is that old thing? You know, it's perishing. It's dying. It's growing old. It's, it's uh, gravity's having a greater effect on it. It's not to be. It's not the body that's going to be uh, um, reunited with my spirit in heaven. In order for it to be transformed to the new thing, the body, the resurrection body, the old body, must die. This is exactly what happens when you, when you bury a wheat grain or any other seed in the ground. It, it dies. And so there's the, there's the uh, wheat life cycle, the cycle of life, or what do they call it? The circle of life, yeah. <laughs> I don't watch those cartoons. but So it starts out. Wheat goes to the ground, seed, germination, and then has all those cool Latin names, and it becomes wheat again, and you can eat it, and you don't have to pronounce the Latin names to eat it. Any questions about those two verses? Okay, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And I, I love this, because is there any area of existence that is not completely 100% under the sovereignty of God? Nothing is outside the sovereignty of God, even what that plant's going to look like when it reconstitutes and comes up through the ground. It's not, you plant a wheat seed, and I guarantee you're not going to get a bull pine. If you do, you planted the wrong seed. It's that simple. So God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Not to worry, Paul says, God will oversee this. The body that was put into the ground is just as he wished, and the body that will come forth from the resurrection will be just as he wishes. Each of the plants has a body of its own and is recognizable and different from others. And so the seeds are recognizable and different from each other. We actually, when I was in high school hundreds of years ago, we had uh, in the FFA and VOAG, we had classes of identifying seeds. You can actually identify seeds and tell what's going to be produced from it. And some of them look very similar. There's, there's characteristics of them you learn about. But so our bodies... Our bodies are recognizable and different from our future resurrection body and will be recognizable from other bodies. All this will be just as God wishes in death and in resurrection. As I said, God's sovereignty rules. 
So just as God through the centuries has worked the miracle with plants, so he will work it with our flesh and resurrection bodies, fleshly and earthy and resurrection bodies. He's trying to get the Corinthians to focus on the fact that God has been doing this a long time. He's been, he's been organi he's organized this planet so that when things die by being planted in the ground, they come forth new as a plant. And he will have no trouble doing that with you, Corinthians. He'll have no trouble. Remember verse 12? Don't be teaching that there's no resurrection. And part of that teaching was this worry. What will come forth? What'll, it'll, nothing will come forth. It's not going to happen. It's easiest, it was easiest for them to just discard the idea. But the fact is, God will give it a body as he wishes, and that body will be perfect. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish, fishes. Now, the, the pompous nature of humans cannot be overstated. How many of you have heard, we found a planet, 28 million light years or not that far, uh, what was the one I heard about, 5,300 light years distance that could support life? Have you ever heard something in, do you know what they actually found? What they did is they, in the spectrograph study of a star, they noticed a little bit of a wobble. And they said to themselves, that wobble is about the right kind of wobble that would be caused by a rock circling around it, pulling it this way and then pulling it that way. It's a tiny little wobble. But if it was a rock, well, that rock could be about this far from it, and it could be about this big, and it could have this much gravity. And if it did, it could retain water. And if it had water, there could be life. They never saw a planet. You hear me, NASA? <laughs> they saw a wobble. And so, it, and, and so this, when I was studying this section, it reminded me, okay, how many species are there on the planet? Well, they say there are 8.7 million. But look at how many they've identified. So theoretically, there's 7.77 million animal species, but they've only identified 953,000. So that means 7 million <laughs> haven't been. Isn't that a bit overstating the case? Evangelistically speaking, as we used to say, I've baptized 80 people, you know. It's been estimated that there are between 7 and 9 million species of animals on Earth. About 8.7 million, give or take 1.3 million, is the new estimated total of species on Earth, the most precise calculation ever offered, with 6.5 million species on land and 2.2 million in the oceans. Announced by the Census of Marine Life, the figure is based on a new analytical technique. The number of species on Earth had originally been estimated at 3 million to 100 million. That pretty well gives us a bracket that we can fit in. <laughs> How much are you going to earn today? Well, somewhere between a penny and $80,000. Can we be a little more specific? No, not today. Sorry. There are six main classes of animal in the world. Mammals, birds, fishes, reptiles, amphibians, and invertebrates. And they're different. God has created a remarkable pantheon of, of creatures. Isn't it interesting to see the differences? And why did he have to do that? He could have just made a bunch of stick figures. I mean, he's God. But he made such beauty and such incredible diversity. Among all animals, by the way, and this is just a, this is free, this is a little bit of information for, for free, ants outweigh humans in biomass. Um, they have, there are billions and billions of tons of ants on this planet, up against about the human's 500 million tons. I don't feel so bad about being a little overweight when he uses numbers like that. 
And while they're both tiny and lacking a backbone, krill are the champs among animals worldwide in terms of numbers, with a population estimated at 500 trillion. So there are approximately 391,000 species of plants. How many plants are there in the world? They think there are about 391,000 species of vascular plants known to science, of which about 369,000 are flowering, according to a report by a, a, a well-known group. But only 215,000 have been identified. So that's a better percentage. Anyway, God has overseen all of this and never did something from the protozoa world get die and come up an animal. It's perfectly designed, perfectly controlled, perfectly sustained by the sovereign God of the universe, Corinthians. Now, I know Paul didn't use anything from National Geographic back there to convince him. But um, so with this vast array of created creatures, we see the genius of God. Paul here is beginning his discussion of how bodies are resurrected. He starts with a description of the creativity of God in making so many different kinds of creatures and supervising them so carefully that every time one dies and a new one is produced, it's the very same thing. By the way, evolution, sorry. Um, Dogs don't go into the grave. I know that's not how it's worn, but dogs don't uh, procreate and produce elephants, which is a really good thing for you, those of you that own dogs. Purina elephant chow? Yes, Cheryl? Evolution. Uh huh. Right. They are not the same. They don't become the same. They don't devolve or evolve into difference. They, are the, they remain the same as they are, and they are not the same as each other. Mm -hmm. Now, do I believe in adaptation, that, that those canaries and those moths and all those things that they've used, the peppered moth in England, that was used when I was in, when I was in college 40 years ago. And I remember thinking at the time, I think they're both still moths. I, wasn't, I, was, I was an evolutionist, but they both looked like moths to me. I didn't think one of them was a bird. So, no, God creates kinds, and out of those kinds comes unimaginable diversity. Um, this should instill in the mind of some, at least, a small idea of the vast power and creative genius of the creator of all. This is one of those marvelous anecdotal illustrations and observations that can be made by people who are paying attention, from which you can draw the conclusion that evolution seems quite out of the picture. The diversity is staggering. Paul is creating the basis for the argument that, post, that the post-resurrection body is different, is different in kind from the pre-resurrection body. It's different. It has different uses. It has a different place that it has to exist, a different set of parameters that it needs in order to navigate the world in which it will exist. So he says there's... All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. Wonderful anecdotal imagery. And then, any questions about that? I thought about really going into a dissertation on evolution, but this church is well taught on that, so it, it wasn't necessary. 15, verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Some have supposed in this verse that Paul may be referring to angels using the term heavenly bodies. This is possible, and the analogy works fine. He would be saying that there are some heavenly types, angels, in, and such, in the earth, and, and, and the earthly types, animals and humans, humans and animals. 
and that their glory is different. Earthly body's glory is different than the heavenly body. <clears throat> Humans and animals <clears throat> are different than angels. And Jim has been talking about that in Hebrews, in the teaching through Hebrews. Their glory is different. The most common accepted translation, though, is that he is referring in general to all of those things we see in the sky. Stars, planets, moons, asteroids, and such. This also, as one looks into the sky, again, demonstrates the creativity of God. I think it's Psalm 19 that says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare the glory of God. And we are hard-pressed to ignore it, but many of us ignore it very well. The word translated glory, by the way, is the standard one used for that designation. Each of the heavenly bodies has its own dazzling display. All earthly bodies in, their same way, in the same way have their own ability to capture attention. So he says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And that was an interesting little study. Um, we've categorized that too. The sun dominates the day sky. And even though it is a star, it has its own kind of glory, which is different from the glory of the stars that are farther away. The moon dominates the night sky and also has a kind of glory differing from the glory of the, scar, the stars in the night sky. There are seven types of stars, uh, with each of them placed into nine different subtypes or classes. There are further divisions for those rebel stars that do not fit nicely into any of these types and classes. And I was going to go into that, but that's kind of details, and, and, and you're welcome to study it out. But what's more important here is the analogy that Paul's working up so that he can come to the conclusion for the Corinthians teaching that there is a resurrection body and it's going to be wondrous. <clears throat> so there's seven types of stars that fit into nine different subtypes. Another demonstration of the massive diversity given to us by God. And again, part of Paul's argument showing that nothing is outside the creative glory nor the sovereignty of the Father of Lights. With this kind of ability, why would anyone be concerned about God's ability to resurrect human bodies? And, and back then, though they didn't have the ability to, to investigate the night sky or the, or the sky, period, they still were pretty understanding about the fact that there were bodies long ways away and that they governed the night and that you could set days and seasons and months and years by them because they were so dependable. God had made them dependable. So this was just an interesting little foray into looking, I was studying, as I was studying the stars for this, I was going to go, like I said, I was going to go into more detail, but I don't know that it's necessary. What we're looking at is the creativity of God, the ability of God, the sovereignty of God in bringing our bodies, the Corinthians' bodies, back out of the ground in a marvelous, glorious manner and resurrecting them and reuniting them with our spirits to spend an eternity with him. And that song, what is it? It's Esther Ruthoy wrote it. A harp, a, a, a harp, something, a, where, where we get the teaching, the teaching that Christians are going to be floating around the universe on clouds playing harps with little halos. It's, it actually comes from a song. It doesn't come from the scripture. We're going to be busy. And I could have gotten into that detail, but we're going to be judging angels. We're going to be, we're going to be busy. We're going to be glorifying God. It's going to be an eternity of busyness, good busyness. And our body has to be fitted for that. Our resurrection body, their resurrection body, must have been necessary to be fitted for that. So then in verse 32, he says, so also, so also, all this creativity, all this marvel, all this perfection, all of this perfectly overseen sovereignty of God, so also is the resurrection of the dead. 
The dead is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable. Okay, there's your first clue, Corinthians. It goes into the ground, a body that can rot, a body that can decompose, a body that can blow up, a body that can be disassociated, a body that can burn. But it comes out of the ground at the last trump, a body that will have no, none of those things will have any effect on it. It's not perishable anymore. It's not burnable. It's not explodable. It's not decomposable. It will be perfect. It will be eternal. One of the Greek objections to the resurrection of the dead was that the body was perishable, corruptible. Paul's catalog of different species, heavenly versus earthly, heavenly versus earthly bodies, and such was carefully calculated to provide a backdrop for the developing description of the difference between the pre-resurrection and post-resurrection body. The body goes into the grave perishable. It is sown as such. But when it comes out of the grave at the final resurrection, it is an imperishable body. Now, what do you think imperishable means? Go ahead. Last forever. Last forever. Kind of like a government project. <laughs> no, even longer than that, if you, can, if you can imagine. If you can imagine. That is, it does not decay. This would have had to have been pointed out, especially to those Greeks who had a specific and historical idea of what the human body did and ended up as. Once it died, it rotted every time, without exception. The Egyptians could maybe make it last, resist rotting for some time longer, but it eventually decayed. It was perishable. God himself declared that we are but dust. We are like grass. We are like the flower of the field that passes away. In various ways, Scripture describes our human bodies post-pre-resurrection as weak and perishable. This is applied to our, our pre-resurrection body, and it is true. We're actually pretty easy to kill, to decompose, to perish. And when you think about it, it's, it's amazing. Um, but God gave us immune systems and, and, and the like that are very, very well-versed at helping us survive. <laughs> So the body that comes out of the grave, however, again, Corinthians, is imperishable, incorruptible, eternal. And the sovereign God of the universe has said so. Any questions? Concerns? Ron. Probably. Probably. In 1844, Joseph Smith actually, from the steps of a courthouse, gave the first Adam God dissertation. And we don't need to go into that. But, but, and it was recorded by 15 Mormon scribes, by the way. So it's not like I'm making this up. So yeah, and they taught that Adam was a God because he went through and lived and, and uh, he would have his own planet. And so that's the idea. We'll come forth and become incorruptible and imperishable. That's what they teach. So yes. Any other questions? It is, sown, it is sown in dishonor, verse 43. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. When Adam fell, all of the honor that God intended for the human body was done away with. And so for the millennia subsequent to that, the human body is no longer able to honor God in the way it was originally intended. When, however, the body is raised in the final resurrection, all that honor will come back, and a glory will be restored that is perfectly useful in glorifying the Father, in glorifying the Son, in glorifying the Holy Spirit. We will get back that honor 
with which we can transfer, transfer is the wrong word, with, 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 with we can worship the Father. Our worship is imperfect at best because of the fall. Won't it be great to be able to perfectly worship the Father for all he has done for us? Although, God, although the Greeks spent a lot of time cultivating strength in their bodies, nevertheless, the human body is actually quite weak when compared to nature. Compare it to a horse or to an elephant. Compare it to the storms that come in nature. We're actually, as I said, quite easy to kill. <laughs> when the Corinthian died and went into the grave, Paul allowed that they were sown into that grave in weakness. But when the resurrection body arises, it is raised, as Paul says, in power. The Greek word translated power is the standard one from which we get the word dynamite, dunamis. The power is not described, but it will be far beyond what we have experienced here. But it will also be completely dedicated to the glorifying of the triune God. This is a power that we don't have here, and quite frankly, if we did have it, we wouldn't use it in the proper way in the first place. That's all supposition because of our fallen nature. But after the resurrection, all the power that God gives to us will be directed towards honoring and glorifying Him, and it will be a wondrous time, an eternal time. We're sown in dishonor, we're raised in glory. We're sown in weakness, we're raised in power. And then, any questions about that? Our lowly bodies. He'll transform our lowly bodies so that they will be conformed to his glorious body. And then in First John it says, we, we don't know what we will be like, but we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We'll see him as, we is, as he is, and it'll be remarkable. We'll be able to go, other than the fact that he's divine, we're like him. We're like Christ. Not little gods, no. Resurrected believers in the divine believers in Christ. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. As if following for at least part of the Greek philosophy, Paul allows that when the body goes into the grave, it is a natural body. The spirit does not go into the grave. Philippians, the Old Testament, numerous scriptures talk about the fact that it, our spirit goes to be with Christ right away. To be absent with the body is to be in Duluth. No, it's to be present with Christ immediately. <clears throat> when it is raised from the grave in the final resurrection, it will be a spiritual body suited to spiritual living. <clears throat> Everything about the resurrection body will be different in that it will be suited and geared for the eternal rather than for the temporal. So, and we have some, some indications from that when Jesus said to the... To the um, Pharisees in Luke chapter 20, he said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and, the, and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. In his commentary, Leon Morris said, there is nothing necessarily sinful or blameful, blameworthy about it, about the body, unless someone deliberately chooses to live on a lower plane when he could live on a higher. Here it means that the body we now have is a body suited to the present life. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing out of the sovereignty of God. Suited to the present life. It is adapted to the suki, the rational principle of life. But such a body is ill-adapted to the world to come. 
Such a body is ill-adapted to the world to come. For that body, for that, a body is needed that is attuned to the spirit. In fact, a spiritual body. This does not mean a body composed of spirit, but rather which expresses spirit, which answers to the needs of spirit. At the end of the verse, the apostle argues that just as there is a body related to the psyche, or the suki as it's in the Greek, so there must also be a body related to the spirit. The spiritual body then is the organ that is intimately related to the spirit of man, just as the present body is intimately related to this spiritual life. We will be perfectly suited for spiritual life, just as we are suited for earthly life here. Any questions about that? Verse 45, and we'll probably end here, but we'll see. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and adding the word first before the word man, and adding the word Adam after the word man, Paul characteristically uses scripture to finally explain this to the Corinthians. Adam himself was a natural body and a natural man not glorified at the time of creation. He, had he and Eve been faithful and obeyed God, they would have been then given the opportunity to probably eat from the tree of life, probably living forever in that perfect state. And that is what they would have bequeathed to the human race, but they did not. Adam was a living soul. The Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, was a life-giving spirit. He gives back the life that Adam lost, and only he can do that. We inherited our natural bodies through Adam. We will inherit our spiritual bodies in the resurrection through Christ. What Adam sowed into the human race, though through disobedience, Christ undid and sowed righteousness to those whom the Father has chosen. Those who trust Christ have his righteousness. We don't want our own. It's worthless. Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5.21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to or resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Moses uh, recorded that as well. We're going to be able to get a little farther. So Christ has undone what Adam did, what Adam and Eve did. He's undone it. And this is a good undoing. This is a good dissolving or devolving. And then Paul finishes up. I'm going to, I'm, we're going to stop here. Um, because the Greeks insisted that the spirit was important and the body was not. Paul didn't give that to them. The body and the spirit are both important. But they have their order. However, he says in verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. It is very likely that Paul here was specifically refuting a Greek position about the afterlife. Plato taught that the ultimate realities are spiritual and physical things only represent them. There were even some false Jewish philosophies at the time to this end, and still. The idea was that the spiritual is important and transcendent, in the, and the physical much less so, or maybe not at all. Paul was telling the Corinthians that the natural body is first. This is what we have. All of us have a natural body. It's first. 
and prior to the resurrection. It goes into the grave and it resurrects a spiritual body. It's not the reverse. This is the order. And in God's sovereignty, what is sown into the grave is natural, is weak, is perishable, is mortal, is corruptible. What comes out of the grave is spiritual, heavenly, incorruptible, imperishable, and immortal. Got your thesaurus? Those are all good words. Are you looking forward to that? I think as we get older, I don't, I mean, it's not like I want to do something about it, but as we get older, it becomes much more of a blessing, of, a, of, a, of, of a, something to really look forward to. And, I am, and God in his great sovereignty has allowed it so that as our bodies break down and we begin to, to suffer the, the, the perishing that we are, perish, the perishing that we have because of age and infirmity, it, it makes us all the more desire to be with him. And I think that's a good thing. But while we're here, we got to occupy. We have work to do. We have places to go, people to see, contracts to sign, as they say, for him in this perishable body that doesn't have the honor that it should have. But we can look forward to a time when it will be imperishable. The honor will be back. The glory that we had before, the, the glory that he, men had, man had before Adam fell will be back and it will be dedicated fully, not to serving ourselves, but to serving God. I'm looking forward to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that everything you have done is perfect. You have order, you have design. There is nothing chaotic about what you have done. You are a God of order, you are a God of beauty, of design, of creativity. And you have done all of those things, not only to draw attention to your incredible creativity, but to remind us of just how worthy you are to be worshipped and honored and served and loved. Not necessarily in that order. So we thank you this morning that we can see the heavens declaring your glory. We can see the life here on the earth declaring your glory. We can see even the perishability that we have declaring your glory to come, that we will be able to, par to participate in truly worshiping and lifting you up in a manner that you deserve. And so we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.